electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, getting back to normal after coronavirus. Is that possible? Scott Gottlieb, former FDA head, weighs in on a possible second wave. Politically, we're going to tolerate a lot more spread going forward than we did on the first go around. And in some respects, we're in better position to do that. And the politics of pandemics. I think it's going to be very hard for these governors and mayors to go backwards, including the federal government, especially heading into an election cycle. And a conversation with city's vice chair Ray McGuire on what could be a pivotal moment in American history. Remember, we know the roll call of the innocent dead, from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin to Amon Arbery to Breonna Taylor to Eric Garner and now to Floyd. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time it's different. The role corporate leaders can take in ensuring that six weeks, six months, six years from now, those names won't be forgotten. I applaud the 10 to $100 million gifts and the relatable messages. We've been there before. Let this not just be another stop by another grave marker. It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. An update right now on the pandemic. Global cases have topped 7.2 million, with the nearly 2 million of those in the United States. Texas, one of the first states to loosen restrictions, saw its second straight day of record hospitalizations. Cases and hospitalizations are also rising in parts of California. Officials there placed nine counties on a watch list. The report warned that more than 18 million people may need to scale back reopening efforts as a result of what they've seen. Andrew. Okay. meantime, Dr. Anthony Fauci warning the pandemic isn't over yet and calling COVID-19 his worst nightmare because of its extraordinary transmission. Speaking to the Biotechnology Innovation Organization yesterday, Dr. Fauci did offer some hopeful comments, though, about the way that the pharmaceutical industry is meeting the challenge. There are a lot of companies involved for both diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, a lot of different types of therapeutics, you know, typical antivirals, anti-inflammatories, you know, things that have to do with coagulation. There's a number of vaccine candidates. I'm very heartened by the fact that the industry has really stepped to the plate very much differently than what we saw with SARS, because the industry is not stupid. They figured it out. The WHO walking back some of its earlier comments about asymptomatic spread now saying much is still unknown. Joining us right now to discuss that and so much more, Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner. He's also a CNBC contributor and serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. And uh, Dr. Gottlieb, we talked about uh, the WHO's comments yesterday uh, when they were originally made or, or, or 24 hours after they had been made. And, and now they seem to have been walked back. There are people out there suggesting that this was done under some kind of pressure by the media or or other healthcare people. How are we supposed to think about this, especially because the WHO has flip-flopped back and forth on a number of issues throughout this pandemic? Well, look, I'm not sure they walked it back. I think they made a, immature, a premature statement in terms of saying that there wasn't uh, asymptomatic spread. They seem to have been basing it on a study that came out just in the last 24 hours 
where when China went back and retested all the citizens of Wuhan, they found 300 cases of asymptomatic um, people and didn't find any secondary spread. And so that seems to indicate that there might not be um, secondary spread from people who are asymptomatic. But it's a single data point, and there's multiple other data points that demonstrate that there is, in fact, asymptomatic spread. Other studies that have looked at contact tracing, as well as studies that have looked at the viral um, titers in people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, um, and how much virus they shed in their nasopharyngeal swabs, or how much virus is detectable in those swabs. And so there's a lot of data suggesting that there is asymptomatic and certainly pre-symptomatic spread. And a single data point on some contact tracing done in China to suggest that perhaps it isn't as uh, robust as we previously thought probably isn't enough to base a conclusion on. And, they, and that's what they seem to have been talking about in that press conference, probably prematurely. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think they so much as walked it back as clarified it. Doctor, we're seeing spread, as you know, and you've commented on uh, in a number of states throughout the country, Texas specifically, where, where it seems to be uh, moving higher. Because I think the public doesn't know, you know, how much spread is, quote unquote, acceptable, what's expected, what's not expected. How are you thinking about that right now? You look at it. You look at a state like Texas and, and you're starting to think what? Well, look, I think politically um, we're going to tolerate a lot more spread going forward than we did on the first go around. Uh, and in some respects, we're in better or better position to do that. The healthcare system is going to be more resilient. We've been able to stockpile resources. We know how to treat this much better. So we should be able to reduce the mortality associated with COVID. But I think it's going to be very hard for these governors and mayors to go backwards, including the federal government, especially heading into an election cycle. So I think you're going to see much more spread tolerated before we take mitigation steps. And the mitigation steps are likely to be a lot more targeted. Now, the testing is going to afford us that ability. Texas right now has an outbreak. Uh, they have 2,000 2, hospitalizations. They're reporting about 1,500 new cases a day. The concerning thing is the positivity rates going up. So they can't just claim that, well, we're testing more, so we're turning over more cases, because, in fact, their positivity rate's going up, which is indicating that they do have an outbreak underway. They're going to have to figure out how to quell that. One thing they can do if they have really good contact tracing in place, which they don't, but if they did, they could figure out where the spread's occurring and just take mitigation steps in those uh, places. So South Korea had some outbreaks. They traced it back to certain kinds of recreational establishments, and they closed those establishments so they were able to target their interventions. So Texas is going to have to figure out how to target interventions. Remember, they're now in phase three of their reopening. They started in phase one in May 1st. Phase three, they're largely reopening everything up to about 50 percent, restaurants up to about 75 percent. But a lot of things have been open at least by uh, at 25 percent levels since May 1st and 50 percent since May 18th. So the state's been open a while. They're going to have to figure out where this spread's occurring and maybe take mitigation steps uh, in a more surgical way in the places where the spread is occurring. Hey, Dr. Gottlieb, just to kind of build on Andrew's question, I mean, I have to say it's, it's really confusing, even for somebody who's following the news closely and watching what's been happening in New Jersey here yesterday. They, they lifted uh, the stay at home order, but people had already been going out and kind of moving about much more freely before that happened. They now say you can have gatherings of up to 100 people, but you should try to socially distance and wear masks whenever possible. It's just really confusing. It was confusing enough before but getting these kinds of mixed signals still makes you wonder what's OK and what's not. I mean, I, I guess we're all kind of testing this out together. But how how would you advise people to be listening to something like that? You get invited to, let's say, a, a bridal shower. Do you go? 
I think I would listen to local advice. I think part of what's confusing is there is a patchwork of approaches across the nation. Some some states that have a lot more spread are opening up a lot more. Some states that have been uh, much more aggressive, have much less spread, are being much more prudent. The tri-state area is actually in the best shape nationally in terms of the reproduction rate right now. You know, I would still try to limit social activity. I would still wear masks. I think we're going to have universal masking for a while now, or at least try to try to impose that. Um, and I would still try to limit my, you know, trips out of the house, group shopping trips, limit social activities, particularly in congregate settings and indoor settings where you know spread um, is, you know, more, it's more conducive to spread. Certainly in the tri-state area, we are in better shape than other parts of the country. But when you look at hotspot regions like Arizona and Texas, they have to be concerned, particularly areas around Houston right now. Um, they can lose control of this very quickly. I think that the seasonal effect that we talked about there's probably an upper limit to that, and we might have already reached the benefits of that seasonal effect. We might not get much more effect as we get into July and August. So this might be it, and we might be stuck with this level of spread, and we're going to have to figure out how to keep that from going higher. Uh, doctor, j- just to follow up on, on, on that, that final question, um, when you think about what, what's taking place in Texas, and you said we, we won't go back, what should we think, though, is acceptable? Meaning you're going to see, as you said, you said we, said we had 2,000 hospitalizations in in the state of Texas right now. If I mean, I hate to say this, but it appears just based on the statistics that you would think that you that 2000 hospitalizations could result in somewhere between 100 and and 200 deaths based on on, on the way these statistics seem 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 to go. The question is, if that number gets to 5000 or to 10,000 in terms of hospitalizations, obviously, therefore, the risk of death becomes higher. How do you think that, I mean, I know you're saying that states are going to continue just to, to stay open, but politically and within the healthcare community, at what point do you think that, 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 that there becomes a, 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 real, a real fight over this? Look, I think that they're going to base it on hospital utilization and resources available to take care of people who are sick. But this is a very hard needle of thread. The idea that they could sort of, we can manage through a certain level of disease and kind of keep it there. This is a very contagious disease, and we're not going to be able to fine-tune this and find just the right level of disease that we can tolerate um, and not have to take those tough mitigation steps but not get above those levels. And so this is a, this is a very precarious uh, situation that we're entering into right now where we seem to be willing to tolerate a level of disease and think that we can control it and keep it at that level. We're going to be looking at hospital uh, resource utilizations and when the hospitals get pressed. I think you're going to start seeing pushback from providers heading into the late summer and the fall if we continue to see this level of spread. Providers aren't going to want to practice medicine in a COVID-only system because policymakers don't have the fortitude to take decisions to try to you know, reduce the spread and, and take some tough mitigation steps, especially at a local level. Now, what we really need are states that have good contact tracing in place and good testing in place. And this is why we talked about the importance of contact tracing. It isn't just to um, try to keep the numbers down, but it's to try to fine-tune those mitigation steps and know where the right. spread is occurring. If, if Texas finds out that the spread is happening in bars and they've reopened bars to 50 or 75 percent, they can bring them back down or shut them back down and just have a surgical intervention. They need to figure that out. The contact tracing is going to tell them that. Dr. Scott Colley, it's always a privilege. As states begin to reopen, Beijing may offer a glimpse of what it might be like for life here in just a few months. Eunice Yoon joins us right now with more on this. And Eunice, it's been a while since we've gotten to talk to you. You were the one who led us through the beginnings of this. We, we saw what was happening there long before it hit our shores. And uh, at this point, we're kind of wondering what life is like for you now. Well, it's gotten a lot better, especially in the past couple of days. It's, it feels a little odd, but I no longer have to get my temperature checked 
everywhere. And, and that's really just one of the latest changes as China emerges from this pandemic. Up until this weekend, boxing with others in a basement gym in Beijing was banned. But now that the Chinese capital has loosened more pandemic restrictions, people like Liu Jiayin are working out, even without masks. I feel safe, he says. The gym is professional and the ventilation is good. As New York and other U.S. cities try to reopen, Beijing could offer a look at what life might look like in two or three months. Restaurants no longer require customers sit three feet apart or register IDs as consistently. The looser approach is bringing relief to businesses like the basement gym and their workers. Our staff hasn't been able to work for the past six months and we're paid less than usual, he says. Now we pay them their full salaries. Another welcome step towards normal life. And Becky, I think you and Andrew have young kids. Another way in which things have normalized, all the schools here have now reopened, even for kindergartners. So the schools screen their temperatures, and they also make sure that the desks are, are set, you know, socially distanced. Um, but also what was interesting is that uh, domestic tour groups are now allowed to restart. So people can travel domestically, uh, just not yet overseas in groups. Uh. That is so good to hear. It's such a glimpse of hope, Eunice, um, especially the kids being able to go back to school. I don't care if I ever go back to the office, but I would love the kids to be able to go back to school. They miss it. I could use a break. I mean, please. Uh, yeah, please. Um, I know I'm, I'm a lot of parents hear here have said so well. the same thing. Yeah. And so the way they're doing it is that they have the temperature check at the beginning of the school gate and then they have various channels to try to make sure that the kids stay apart because it's harder to keep kids from, you know, hugging each other. So they try, they, they do I, that. That's to one of my big fears. Inside. And then the desks are apart. Yeah. Yeah. So with the PE class, they're still allowed to have a PE class, though that's when there's more intervention from the teachers. They try to make sure that the kids aren't um, grabbing at each other all the time. Um, but um, they also made a couple of changes where now uh, classrooms, everybody stays in the same class. So before people would switch classrooms or they might um, have a class oh, with a different sure. teacher. Now all the teaching is done by one. Yeah, by one teacher. So so they are making changes in order to adapt. Hey, Eunice, was there any debate in China about teachers, though? I think one of the big questions in the United States, in the United States right now, especially among teachers unions and the like, and it's the debate that's happening between states and, and, and teachers unions is which teachers go back? Do certain teachers not go back? Do those teachers get paid? Was that was that something that became a, an issue there? No, it, it hasn't really been an issue as as much, say, in the United States, because, uh, you know, the system is really different here. So the, the pay of the teachers hasn't been discussed as much as just a larger discussion that people are having about how, um, you know, if you're not at work, the fear is that um, you're not going to get paid as much. There, there could be a basic salary, but you won't actually get your full salary. That's the discussion that people are having over here, but not so specific to teachers. Hey, Eunice, it's a it's a, a array of hope for all of us. It looks great. You look great. It's good to see you. And we hope we are there in a couple of months, too. Next on Squawk Pod, one of Wall Street's most prominent black leaders, Citigroup Vice Chair Ray McGuire. They ask me how I got here, and I tell them it's a combination of prayer, preparation, performance, and paranoia. But, Andrew, this is not about me. This is about all those kids who look like me. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today on the pod, we're continuing our ongoing conversation about systemic racial and economic inequality in the U.S., and particularly the role of corporate leaders to actively undo it and narrow the opportunity gap. I caught up with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, 15 years ago today, to the very day, June 10th, 2005, you wrote a story in the New York Times called Panache on Wall Street. Who was that story about? It was about a banker named Ray McGuire, who had really become one of the most trusted advisors in the country to CEOs across the nation. He had been at Morgan Stanley, and he was about to make a massive job change to scale the heights of Citigroup. And he's since gone on to become the vice chairman at Citigroup. He's probably one of the longest standing veterans on Wall Street today. You know, Ray has this very powerful and moving backstory, which is that he grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, He was raised by his mother, who had been a social worker. He managed to get himself a scholarship to transfer to Hotchkiss in Connecticut. And he ended up going from there to Harvard, uh, to Harvard Business School. I always remember sitting with him. Now, 15 years ago, we were at the Harvard Club when I did that interview with him. And he talked about when he first went to Hotchkiss and how everybody around him was white. And, but he didn't put it in that context. What he said was, he said, my attire was a little different than everybody else's. I witnessed students who had shirts with alligators on them. <laughs> Referring, of course, to those Izod uh, polo shirts. But he, he has a very special way about him and, and, a, and a way with words. Our conversation with Ray McGuire today was actually very personal and very emotional. How did it strike you? Somebody with a long tenure on Wall Street being really so vulnerable. I think the lesson of these past several weeks, and as we've had the privilege and opportunity to spend time with some of the, and and unfortunately it's too few African-American leaders in this country, is that no matter what title you have on your business card, or how much money you have in the bank, that if you're an African-American in this country, you feel as vulnerable as George Floyd. And that's the reality that I think too few people in this country thus far have appreciated. It's been an education, I hope, for all of us. Our next guest has advised on some of the biggest deals in the business, including Time Warner's $108 billion transaction with AT&T, why the sale to Pfizer, and so many more. Joining us this morning is Citigroup Vice Chairman Ray McGuire, is also the chairman of Citi's banking, capital markets, and advisory business. And Ray, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, there's so many important things to talk about society. I, I do want to just get your thoughts before we even delve into that. Just on the markets right now, capital markets, you're talking to CEOs constantly uh, about uh, the way they're feeling. And um, I'm trying to understand whether you think the way they're feeling is reflected in the market uh, as as the U.S. reopens right now. 
So uh, thank you for having me. I, I'm reminded today of the great 21st century philosopher Drake, started at the bottom, now we're here. With respect to your question on the markets, the markets, especially the debt capital markets, are wide open. The equity capital markets are also open. Uh, prior to the confidence that appears to be on Wall Street, uh, we saw companies accessing their revolving lines of credit. Today, we see them going into the, into the public markets. There appears to be some disconnect, however, between what gets reflected in the capital markets and the stock markets and what is getting reflected in the neighborhoods, or the reality of the neighborhoods, I should say. I want to talk a little bit about your story. Um, I went back and found it, um, and you'll remember, I wrote a piece about Ray McGuire back in 2005, and you have a, a powerful story. Um, grew up in Dayton, Ohio, got a scholarship to Hotchkiss. Just tell us your, uh, your story for a moment, especially in the context of what's taking place in America right now. Thank you. Again, thank you for having me. My story is when I said started from the bottom, I started from the other, other side of the tracks. Uh, I've been on Wall Street this September for 36 years. My mother, who's 94 years old and a social worker, raised me and my two brothers with the help of our grandparents. I started getting bust when I was in the sixth grade. There was a teacher who recognized that I had some talents. And so I got bust to the suburbs of Dayton, hour, hour and a half away after I walked one and a half to two miles to get to the bus. And I went to a school called the Miami Valley School. From there, 11th grade teacher said, if you're as good as they say you are, why don't you go test yourself against the big boys in the East? I landed at Hotchkiss. And from there, I was fortunate to get into the six colleges to which I applied. I eventually went to Harvard College. And then I took a year off on a fellowship and went to Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. I have today been the longest standing head of investment banking in probably the history of Wall Street. I've been at City for 15 years, and as I said, uh, on Wall Street for 36 years. Remember, I was on scholarship from sixth grade until I finished, uh, until I finished graduate school. They ask me how I got here, and I tell them it's a combination of prayer, preparation, performance, and paranoia. But, Andrew, this is not about me. This is about all those kids who look like me and many who don't. This is about education, and education was our ticket. And today, the educational system is simply reflective of the institutional racism that we have experienced for at least 400 years. And so I live through uh, the crisis and, and, and the systemic racism every single day. But I say maybe, maybe George Floyd is different. Maybe George Floyd is different. Remember, we know the roll call of the innocent dead, from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin to Amon Arbery to Breonna Taylor to... to Eric Garner, and now, to, and, now to, and now to Floyd. Maybe this time it's different because there's no confusion. We saw cold-blooded murder, eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so when my seven-year-old says to my mother or to my, to my wife, Mommy, why is it that that policeman has his knee on that man's neck? 
And mommy, is he going to do that to me? And mommy, will he do that to you? Will he do that to Papa? Will he do that to Cole and Ella? And mommy, why are the other policemen, why are they just standing around? Because other people are saying, help him, help him. And he's saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Remember, Eric Garner couldn't breathe. And so what do we tell our children? What do you tell your children? What do I tell Leo? Ray, it's heartbreaking. Um, Let me ask you this. As as somebody who advises corporate leaders around the country and around the world, and so many corporate leaders are trying to step up, uh, talking about stepping up, uh, thinking about what they can or cannot do, what would you tell them to do? Right now. Well, first you, first, you have to acknowledge that we have what, what the COVID and all its disaster rec- acknowledged. We see the disproportionate impact that COVID has had on the black community. Disproportionate. What COVID has done is expose the virus that existed here for 400 years. There is the systemic racism of economics, the systemic racism in education, the systemic racism in healthcare, the systemic racism in the criminal injustice. And so what I say to the CEOs and to the corporate leaders around the country and around the world is that this time should be different. This time has to be different. I applaud the 10 to $100 million gifts and the relatable messages. We've been there before. Let this not just be another stop by another grave marker. What the world has now acknowledged is that this racism exists. And since Wall Street is focused on numbers and corporate America is focused on numbers, we have to understand that in 1955, the Fortune 500 was created. 65 years later, there have been 20 CEOs. Today, there are five who are black. Of the 70 trillion assets that we manage, Less than 1%, less than 1% are managed by diverse, what they call diverse managers. And if you think about African-Americans, it's going to be significantly less than that. In New York City, which has 65% minorities, less than 3% of the contracts go to those minorities. At my alma mater, which has served as a feeding pool for Wall Street talent, This year, they had 938 in the class of 2021. They've held consistent with 50, 5-0, 50 African-Americans. And that number is held constant, notwithstanding Harvard Business School, increasing its numbers for three decades. What do I tell CEOs? We welcome the millions of dollars. We welcome the relatable messages. But we need to do more. We need to change the relatable messages in the $10 million, which are, which are important. They don't get to, they don't begin to get to the systemic racism. We can't satisfy ourselves that we've checked the box yet again. We can't satisfy ourselves that in the George Floyd funeral, we had more mourners. We had a wider television audience. And six months from now, or maybe six weeks from now, we forget that George Floyd 84, 8 minutes and 46 seconds, knee on the neck by those who take an oath to protect us, have abused us. What should corporate, the corporate world do? 
we need to change a mindset. We need to have the conviction to change the mindset. It is not check the box. It is not check the box. We need to have the courage to recognize that this is a defining moment. If I look at those who are protesting, I got as many white kids, millennials, boomers, generations out protesting. And yeah, I got some anarchists and I got some looters. And I got some people out there who are political opportunists. But the people are now saying this is a defining moment in the course of American history. And we ought to take that moment. Otherwise, it will have been another sad day in the neighborhood. And we all will have witnessed. Ray, Ray, are there concrete things that you think companies should be doing? We all we all talk about diversifying the boardroom, diversifying management, uh, doing more to re- to recruit uh, African-Americans and the like. But but are there specific things that you'd like to see right now? Let me give you let me give you one example here where we can make a material difference. If I look at education and the racism that exists in education. I look at the results in August of not so many months ago of the New York State education. You look at the, the testing results, 65% of black or African-Americans are below proficient, 65%. We're in this debate about public versus charter and the kids suffer. We had to unfortunately go to homeschooling. We didn't have internet or computers in the neighborhood. Why doesn't corporate America facilitate that? Why don't we invest in computers and technology in the neighborhoods? That's one tangible way to go about it. Why don't we invest in back office support for the 96% of small businesses that are sole proprietors? Why don't we put capital into the neighborhoods? I could come up with a project that is not a project, but something that will overhaul the system. I got infrastructure that allows for vocational training and technology, and I got capital. 1%, less than 1% of $70 trillion. That then helps me create, that helps me create more wealth, which goes into the community. So there are a number of Ray, tangible things that yep. can occur, that we can, that we can invest in. Uh, Ray, before we let you go, I, I got to ask, because it's been in the news uh, there are a lot of political leaders and business leaders in the city of New York uh, that are trying to recruit you to run for mayor. And I gather you've you've had conversations with them or they've had conversations with you. Can, are you would you like to run for mayor? Would you run for mayor? Andrew, listen, I've, I've read the same reports. I've received similar phone calls. This is a moment in time where leaders have to decide what difference they will make. What role will they play in this defining moment? Leaders have to lead and soldiers need to get prepared. We need to do whatever we can and commit every resource that we have, every single resource that we have to combat this 400 years of systemic racism across every one of the important, important narratives, education, economics, criminal injustice, and health care. I will do whatever it is that I can, my part, to take on or to continue to have a leadership role in this great city of ours. We can do better. We must do better. It's important for us to survive. Ray McGuire, it's a powerful message. We appreciate you you being with us this morning. A privilege to spend time with you, and we hope you come on back and continue this dialogue with us. So thank you very, very much, Ray. Thank you for having me. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. 
Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And that's the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And please subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.